through 35. You can use one of the Bibles in the pews or just follow along on the screen. But before we get there, um, I had a question for the kids. There are a few here this morning, so I'll talk to you and a few, I'm sure, online. So, but you adults can also, I'm sure you've had this experience before too, but have you ever gotten to an argument with a friend or sibling? Any of you ever gotten to an argument? Any? No arguments in this room? No, no. Have you ever gotten to an argument with a friend or a sibling and they're, try, they're telling you or you're telling them something that they can't believe or that you can't believe? Have you ever been in that situation where you're trying to tell somebody, a friend or about something and they just don't believe it? It's just either too good to be true or, um, or they just don't think you're, you're right. And you try to convince them by giving them all kinds of facts and you try to do as much as you can to help them to understand or maybe your friend is doing that to you to help you to believe what they're saying. And you kind of get to the end of this and you still don't believe and what do you say? I remember when I was a little boy, I remember getting to these kind of arguments with friends and siblings. And what do, you, what do you get, when you get to the end of this argument, what do you say? Prove it, right? I used to say that all the time, prove it, you know? We want proof that something, that something has been told to us, especially if it's not what we expect. Or maybe we think it's too good to be true. And this morning in our passage in Luke, we have a similar situation, Remember John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin who was preparing the way for Jesus, right? He was telling people to repent and be baptized. He was out in the wilderness baptizing people in the Jordan River, right? And John the Baptist is wondering now if what he had been telling people about Jesus is true. He was wondering if he is the Messiah, the promised one, He's not sure Jesus is who he thought he was. And he's not sure because he's not doing what John the Baptist thought Jesus should be doing. John the Baptist is saying what we often do with our friends or siblings to Jesus. Prove it. Prove it, Jesus. And so we'll read in Luke chapter 7, 18 through 35. The disciples of John reported all of these things to him. It's everything that we've been learning and, and reading up until this point. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to, to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? 
Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. And thank you for your word made flesh in Jesus. And Lord, as we hear his words this day, Lord, may we hear them with ears of faith. May we see them with eyes of faith. Lord, may we come to you with our unbelief, with our doubts, and may we have them answered as you answered your servant, John. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's been a few weeks since we've been in Luke. Uh, was away this past week, and so I'll remind you where we've been. We were a few weeks ago in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 18. And that's where Jesus entered the town of Nain, right? Uh, he encounters a funeral procession. Remember, Jesus has left Capernaum where he's done all kinds of miracles. He spoke and healed the centurion's uh, servant. And he's from, going from Capernaum to Nain. And there's likely, like I said, likely a joyful celebration taking place. All these people who have been healed, all these people who have had demons cast out of them, all these people who have seen the work of the kingdom of God, who have heard the good news and are following Jesus, and they are encountered by a funeral procession, grief and mourning. And we said that the text asked us the question, do we live in the truth that God has visited his people you remember that after Jesus raised the son from the dead, the people declared that God had visited, has visited us. In Jesus, they saw a great prophet. They had not yet seen him as God in the flesh, but they knew that God had visited them in the person of Jesus. Do we live in the truth that God has visited his people? We saw that because God has visited his people in Jesus, his word brings life. We looked at three words from, this, from the passage, compassion, the word arise, and arisen. And our series in the Gospel of Luke that we are continuing is called, we titled it Certainty in Christ. 
And we did that because Luke actually tells us that why he wrote the gospel, that we would have certainty in Christ, that those he was writing to, Theophilus in particular, but the rest of the church would have certainty in Christ. We said that Luke was not an eyewitness to Jesus, to the events of Jesus. He was likely, a, at the very least, a, an adult convert to Christianity, but even more likely a second-generation Christian. His parents had come to faith, and then he was a second-generation Christian who had heard the good news, who had heard about Jesus, but wanted to investigate for himself and for others whether what he had heard and believed was in fact true. And after doing that, he himself has certainty in Christ and wants us to have certainty in Christ. And I, I lay that out this morning because maybe there were doubts creeping in. Perhaps Luke himself started his research because of some doubts that maybe he or Theophilus or his home church had. And yet Luke, by the end, writes, I write this that you would have certainty in Christ. And that's important for us today because we come across someone in our text, John the Baptist, who needs certainty, just like us. We need certainty. And Luke tells us that we can have it in Christ. But before we get to our text, a little bit of background is probably helpful for us to understand exactly what's happening here in the text. John is in prison. That's why he's not himself going to Jesus and asking him, sending his disciples. He's in prison. He's found himself in prison because he had condemned Herod's marriage to Herodias. Herodias was his one-time sister-in-law, and, you know, things got a little bit uh, weird and crazy, and he offed his brother and married his sister-in-law, and John, as a prophet would, pointed out that that was not godly of Herod to do. And Herod and Herodias didn't appreciate John pointing this out, and so they arrested him and put him in a dungeon in Herod's desert fortress palace, very desolate place. It's probably really difficult to imagine how desolate. And it's also where John's life will come to an end, where his head will be placed on a platter at a party gone very wrong, where Herodias receives that as a gift. So you can see why John might have a few questions, right? He might be wondering, uh, this isn't going the way I had planned for this to go. This isn't what I expected of you, Jesus. In our text, John expresses his questions, his doubts. And in that, there's an underlying question that we all must deal with, I think. Is it okay to have doubts? And what should we do with them? Is it okay, like John, to wonder, to question, are you the one? Or should we look for another? And what do we do with those doubts? And like John, we often wonder where God is. I'm, at least I do sometimes. If he notices or cares 
whether he is doing anything to right wrong, to reverse injustice, to promote equality. We can be troubled sometimes when these doubts arise. They make us feel guilty or ashamed. Maybe we fear that our faith is breaking. And yet, God is not troubled by our honesty. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is not troubled by our honesty. They are not troubled by our doubt. And what we see in our text is because Jesus is the one, we can bring our doubts to him. Because Jesus is the one, the one that John was wondering, are you the Messiah, the one, the, the one who is going to set all things right? Are you the one? But because he is the one, we can bring our doubts to him. We'll look at bringing our doubts to Jesus. What does that look like? And then we'll look at how Jesus gives assurance. Bringing our doubts to Jesus in verses 18 through 20. I don't know about you, but when I read this text, I, my initial response is like to think, of, think less of John, right? I mean, if I'm honest with myself, I mean, he receives reports from his disciples of what Jesus has been doing and preaching. And what have we seen that Jesus has been doing and preaching? I mean, we've seen him heal literally hundreds or thousands of people. We've heard him preach the good news. We've seen him cast out demons. We've seen him raise a man from the dead. All this has been reported to John. And John asks the question, are you the one? Are you the one? Why? Why would John ask this question? I mean, we look at it, at least I do, and I'm like, what are you talking about? Of course he's the one. I mean, he just raised a dude from the dead, and then he's cast out demons. He's done all these things. How can he not be the one? But think about John. Think about the situation he finds himself in. Think about his prophecy of who Jesus would be. Right? In Luke chapter 3, John says these words, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear this, his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Does that sound like what Jesus is doing? Does that sound like what we've been looking at, the ministry of Jesus up until this point? I don't think so, and neither did John, right? This is not what John had prophesied. He's in prison. He had proclaimed the approach of the powerful Messiah who would come with his winnowing fork in his hand. Fire would come out, would burn the chaff. And yet, the ministry of Jesus looks nothing like that. 
right? It is that he came to serve, not to be served. That he is healing and casting out demons. That he is eating with tax collectors and sinners. Where is this? Yes, there is power, the healings, the demons being cast out. But not the power that John was looking for. Jesus' ministry does not look what he expected in the chosen king, the conquering king that would come. The Bible's honest about how people, even people like John, who we'll see shortly, was the greatest prophet, <laughs> respond to God's unusual and surprising ways. His complaint, his doubt, his question is that Jesus doesn't seem to be the one, doesn't seem to care. John is seeing all sorts of injustice and pain, especially his own. It's literally killing him. And as I said, John looks at Jesus' ministry and he seems indifferent. He's going to parties. He's eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors. To John, Jesus seems inactive and idle in the face of misery and pain. John is a prophet called to deliver God's word, and yet John's not sure that he's heard the word of God correctly. He's not sure he delivered the right message. And even though that John is questioning, doubting whether Jesus is the one, look where he takes his complaint. Look where he takes his doubt. He takes them to Jesus. He goes straight to the source. He takes his disappointment, his frustration, and his doubt to Jesus. And Jesus receives John's doubt. I mean, think about that. I mean, it's easy, I think, for, for me at least, to look at this and to be like, for John's disciples to come to Jesus and ask him, are you the one or should we look for another? It's easy for me to, to think that Jesus' response should be, seriously, John? Really? Come on, cousin. You don't see it? You're the greatest prophet ever. What is wrong with you? No. He doesn't yell and belittle John. He doesn't say, oh, come on, man. He doesn't dismiss him. He takes John's question, and what does he do? He said, in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who are blind, he, he bestowed sight. He takes that question that the, John's disciples bring, and he's like, in case you missed it, let me show you one more time. In case you missed the beauty, the restoring power of the kingdom, let me show you one more time 
and he shows them. And then he explains all that he has done using a variation of the prophecy of Isaiah. He tells the prophet to go look at the prophecy. Prophet, go look at the word of God and be reminded that this is exactly what the prophets said I would do. Exactly who I am to be. He meets John in his doubt and he answers him. And it's so important for us to know that we can go to God with all of our questions, doubts, and frustrations. We can go to him when we're angry with him. We see that here, we see it throughout Scripture, especially in the Psalms. He will not reject us. But he also doesn't promise that we'll be able to comprehend the answers that he gives or that we'll even maybe like the answers that he gives. Look, this is the answer that he gives John. My guess is that John still wasn't really happy with the answer. Right? John wanted a Messiah who was going to come and cast out the Romans, right? John had already received those reports, right? He had already knew that he was healing and casting out demons, and this young man was raised from the dead, and yet John is saying, where are the fireworks? Where's the fire coming down from heaven? Why are the Romans still here? Why are the corrupt religious leaders still doing their shtick? When was Jesus going to get him out of the dungeon? In his book, Faithful Doubt, our friend Travis Scott, not the rapper, but the pastor in Pittsburgh, helps us here. He says, many Christians think the presence of doubt cancels out faith or makes them somehow unworthy to receive grace. The problem with this way of thinking is that it does nothing to eliminate doubt and questions. It just buries them so they can be hidden. When we aren't honest about our doubts and questions, they are never actually addressed and end up doing more damage to us. We give doubt more power when we treat it as something that can never be admitted. You see, Jesus receives our doubts, receives our questions. And as he answered John to assure him that, yes, he is the one, he assures us as well. In verses 21 through 35, he assures John with what he has already done and what he will do. Many people expected the Messiah to come in wrath, to execute vengeance upon those they considered to be enemies of God and Israel. But instead, Jesus comes in solidarity with all human sinners and bears in himself the vengeance and wrath of God against his enemies, including us and our sin. 
That's why Jesus' ministry is filled with miracles of forgiveness and release for those who are in bondage. Blessed is the one who sees that Jesus is the coming one who brings mercy, compassion, and forgiveness. Right? And by highlighting these miracles for John, Jesus affirms in Luke through the retelling, affirms that the Old Testament is being fulfilled, right? That, that Jesus is the, mess, the Messiah, the Messianic one. He's assuring John, as I said, prophet, go look at the word of God and be assured of who I am, that what I am doing is indeed the signs of the kingdom the signs of the good news of the gospel that I am bringing. These are the signs of the sermon that I preached in Nazareth, that the year of Jubilee is here, that the blind shall receive sight, that I am anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, set liberty all those who are oppressed, that it is the year of the Lord's favor. This is what I've been doing, John. This is who I am. And this is the assurance for you, John. It's the assurance for us as well. It's the assurance to be reminded that God is indeed at work, that God has indeed done the work through Jesus Christ, that we have forgiveness, compassion, and mercy because Jesus has come in his first coming, that he has been one with us, taking the wrath of God upon himself. And yet this is an offense. Jesus even says, Blessed are those, is the one who is not offended by me. He understands that there will be those who this is a stumbling block for. But he assures us that those who are not offended by him will indeed know him. That, that we're not offended by the uniqueness of Jesus' way of ministry. The fact of his kind of ministry is unexpected might trip some up then and it still does today. Some find it either too hard or too good to be true. Too hard to believe or too good to be true. And yet Jesus says those who are not offended Right? It's sometimes too hard to believe. It is a free gift in Christ. It is a kingdom that celebrates the new life in Christ. It is the kingdom that throws parties. It is the kingdom that prepares for Jesus' second coming by feasting and not fasting. And that scandalizes some people because we're, it's welcoming sinners and tax collectors into the party. 
but it's also too good to be true for some. Because how can that be? How can I be welcomed? How can I be wanted? And Jesus says to come, that he does, desires us to come to him, desires us to believe that he is indeed the one. And he says that all those who are blessed, are offended by him, are, hold a special place in the kingdom right? He says that John is the, is the highest person ever born of a woman. None is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. He's, ba- he's saying those who understand our need for Jesus, those who believe that he is indeed the one, those who are not offended by him are assured of their place in the kingdom. That as great as John was, and is in Christ. Those who believe in Jesus, like tax collectors and sinners, who understand their need for him, are even greater in the kingdom of God, the greatest prophet ever. That is how special it is to share in the salvation that Jesus brings. And these people see Jesus, they see the salvation of Jesus breaking into the world. And they declare that God is righteous. That means they agree, they confess that God is true in what he says. And they receive his plan of salvation that comes through repentance and our need for him. Submission and repentance, the forgiveness of our sins. It's the confession that God is just or righteous and that God justifies the sinner by grace alone. Those who receive that are in the kingdom. But there is also a warning. It's a warning for those who do not receive that, who do not see their need to repent and to be, to receive the forgiveness of sins in, Christ, in God in Christ Jesus. And he says plainly in this passage that the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. They saw the need for everybody else, but not for themselves. And Jesus said, there is no one who does not have this need. And Jesus closes by reminding us of what it means for us to see the kingdom through the eyes of Jesus, through the eyes of faith. He uses this little tune that kids would sing or call to one another in the marketplace. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. You know, John fasted and talked about sin and people said, that's too gloomy, John. We want you to do a dance. We want you to have fun with us. 
<laughs> Jesus said, yeah, but then when I came along, I was having fun dancing and singing and partying. Um, and then I'm called a drunkard and a glutton. Jesus is reminding us that the kingdom is something that we might miss if we aren't careful. But that we have his assurance that if we see with eyes of faith, we'll see this salvation that Jesus brings. Right? This news of the kingdom is always new. It's always unexpected. It can even be upsetting. It won't fit in with perceived ideas and it also doesn't pander to our prejudices. It digs far deeper than our shallow understanding of the evils of Satan's kingdom, but it soars much higher than the low view of the glories of God's kingdom. God often acts in surprising ways, Jesus is reminding us. With eyes of faith, we will see those surprising ways in which he acts. Jesus points to his ministry, to himself as the evidence that he is the one. God comes to us in surprising ways on his own terms. And the call is to not be offended by the one he sends or by how he brings his plan to pass. And even in the midst of doubt, we are called to see what God has done and trust that his way is the path of wisdom. And wisdom's children see his way and walk in them. And wisdom's path is the blessing of sharing in God's presence, sharing in the kingdom that has come and will come in its fullness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word made flesh in Jesus Christ welcomes our questions, our doubts, does not dismiss us, but points to himself, to his work, to his gospel. So here's the proof. Come to me. Rejoice in the kingdom. Lord, may we come with our doubts, with our fears to our Savior Jesus, knowing that he is faithful, he is good, and Lord, that he is just. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.